Hello and welcome to Lifting the Rug. I'm your host, A.V. Eastwood. And this episode, we're talking about drugs. Fun! Until they're not. So last week we talked about prisons and our rising prison population. And of course it came up that a large reason why our prisons are uh, filling up, like a piggy bank with no more space left to put coins, um, is because we actually arrest a lot of people for drugs. So I would like to welcome Kali, who is from the Drug Foundation. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So firstly, I want to ask, is New Zealand waging a drug war? I mean, we know America is, but are we waging a drug war? Yeah, America is, and actually lots of countries are. Um, Officially, we're not. So if you ask the government, do we have a war on drugs? That's no, that's not an official policy. But if you ask a drug user, probably you get a different story. So, um, you know, our focus is definitely more on prohibition enforcement than it is on treatment and healthcare. So we've got probably about 20% of of the amount goes towards treatment. As uh, so, 20% goes towards treatment, 80% goes towards enforcement, which is not a really great way to um, invest your money around drugs, given that it's actually treatment and healthcare that gives you much better bang for buck in terms of um, treating the problems caused by drugs. So do we have a drug war? I would say, yes, we do have a drug war. So people were fun- really focused on punishment. Um, we, we, I mean, we do have a lot of healthcare. I'm not saying we don't have treatment and people can get help if they really need it. Um, just not always, it can take a really long time to get it, it can be not quite what you need at the time that you need it, so we've got a lot of improvement that we can do, yeah. Yeah, so that was something that came up in the prison episodes, Mm. Um, and you know, it may not make people comfortable to say, but it might be (laughs) worth saying that maybe we live in a rather vengeful culture, Ventral, yeah. Um, there's a lot of vindictive stuff that comes out about drugs. It's a funny thing because um, I guess people have a real moral gut reaction to, to drug issues. Um, and I think this is something that's been created um, since there's been an official war on drugs um, uh, internationally. I think it's because drugs have been made illegal that people have started to see them as a moral issue and started to, to see people who take them as somehow immoral or fundamentally flawed. Um, I think that's something we really need to question about ourselves. Um, you know, why are we so vindictive and so um, why do we get so almost hysterical about things to do with drugs and, you know, the issue that's been going on in the media lately about the the meth houses and, and, Mm. you know, that's been a moral panic which has led people to to test houses for meth when actually there was no scientific evidence that that living in a house in which meth had been smoked was actually dangerous. But yet it's become this big, massive um, thing and people have been terrified of it. And that's because people are, you know, because of the moral um, implications of taking drug use, I guess, given that we've had the context of a war on drugs over the last 60, 70 years. That story you bring up is actually really interesting because it only came out last week. And um, I originally hadn't set up this interview to include that, but it's interesting that you do because... um, some people are accusing the previous government of um, Housing NZ of basically using the moral panic to kick people out of houses. Would you agree with that? 
Um, I don't know if they were doing it or not. I mean, it depends how much of a conspiracy theorist you are, I guess. But the fact is that they were evicting people on very little um, evidence. Well, no evidence, actually, let's be realistic about it. I mean, I remember when I started at the Drug Foundation about 18 months ago, my first job was to do um, a submission into the development of the standards around methamphetamine. Um, And I spent a few days looking at it, and I was like, I was gobsmacked. There was no evidence. I couldn't find any evidence to support the need for a standard around meth around meth use in houses and that's what we wrote in our submission and yet that kind of moral panic continued and was kind of um, I guess the the fires were flamed by by the national government at that time as well for whatever reason um, probably more for political point scoring than for you know a desire to get rid of people out of houses or whatever I'd like to think but yeah Um, yeah we need to take a good long look at ourselves how that whole um, incident sort of happened I mean it just doesn't make any sense looking back on it well it does sort of go back to the prison topic um Mm. and this notion that maybe we are uh maybe it goes back to the days of um good old England where we used to go to public executions in the city square um (laughs) maybe uh, maybe we are quite a vengeful culture it would be good to see us focus more on compassion, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, could, I could definitely see that being an awesome thing. <laughs> if we sort of um, reframed our, our thinking around drugs particularly and around prisons as well um, towards more, you know, compassion and how can we solve problems rather than just punish things when they go wrong. Um, yeah, and I mean, if you look at the way we parent, we're, we're managing now to parent in a much less vengeful way. We don't beat our children and we tend to reason with them and talk to them as if they're human beings, which they are, in fact. Mm. Um, and I think that's a lovely, a much nicer way to run a family, and I think it, it's a much nicer way to run a country as well. Yeah. yeah, and I think generally reasoning with people gets them to do what you want quite a bit more often. Well, it certainly works with my kids. I'm on the occasions when I'm in a really grumpy mood and just try and lay down the law, that always backfires. They're, they're going to do what I don't want them to do just to show that they can, really. So mm. <laughs> I guess it's a little bit the same with drug laws. There's no point just saying, you know, there's no point ramping up the penalties and ramping up the punishment and thinking that that's going to stop people taking drugs. It's just really, I think we've got enough evidence now from the last 100 years to show that that just does not work in any way, shape or form, rather than, you know, you know, drug harms are getting worse, not better, as a result of that kind of approach. Now, um there's been a lot of talk about um, legalising cannabis, which, funnily enough, has been uh, controversial for quite some time. But if you look <laughs> at... Um, yeah, I don't know why it's still controversial, but it is. But if you look at the state of the nation, which I recommend, you know, it's good reading for anyone if you want to know. Salvation Army does a really good job on this. They... Um, they're very, they're not left, they're not right. In 2009, um, looking at these stats, the charges against cannabis were at about 30, 35%, and meth was only at 15 But by the current time, that is completely flipped. And now we have only 15% of people being arrested for cannabis and a whopping 40% of people being arrested for meth. So would you say that meth meth is, in, is the new kid on the block and how do we deal with that? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, stats that I've seen from the Ministry of Justice recently were slightly different. So they were saying that of um, the 5,000 people convicted of drug offences each year, around 45, 46% were for cannabis, 45, 46% were for meth. Mm. Um, but when I, when I really looked into that, um, I noticed that for the um, cannabis ones, uh, for the cannabis ones, there was a range of offences within that. Okay. Um, but for meth, about 75% of those convictions were for possession or use or possession of a drug utensil, so really low-level offences. Whereas for cannabis, you have to be sort of... Um, more people are sort of um, cultivating or dealing to, in order to get those convictions. So they're definitely coming down much harder on meth. Yeah. Um, and whether that's to do with the way police are prosecuting, I think it, it probably is a lot to do with that as well. So quite often they'll uh, let people go for cannabis, um, whereas they'll, they'll come down harder on people who have meth use. So whether that's to do with the rates of use or whether it's to do with um, the way police prosecute, um, not entirely sure. Um, I do know that overall rates of meth use are still pretty low on a population base, so less than 1% of people take meth uh, or use meth, um, but in certain communities, well, so that's an official stat from um, Ministry of Health, but you'll find anecdotally at least that some communities have way higher incidence than that, and it's a real serious problem in some communities, meth use. Um, so... Yeah, it's really, unfortunately, we don't have great stats in New Zealand, so it's really hard to get a picture of the problem. So we know the general New Zealand-wide stat, there's less than 1% of people using meth or have used meth. But what's that like? What does it look like in certain communities that are really struggling with it? You know, what does it look like for certain age ranges or certain genders or certain um, ethnicities? Like, we don't have a really good insight into it, unfortunately. Well, that's interesting because if you believe the media... Mm. you would think that um, there's a meth wave sweeping the country. Yeah, so that, I mean, part of that is due to the fact that some communities are really suffering from meth. Others are, are part of, another part of it is the fact that media loves clickbait kind of thing and mm. it loves to sort of whip people into a frenzy and make them terrified around drugs just because it sells media. Mm, that they do. Yeah. yeah, and so they use words like scourge and um, waves of, you know, crime waves and all this. And, and if you look at the stats, you find, oh, okay, crime hasn't actually gone up or meth use hasn't actually gone up, so where's this scourge coming from? Where's this wave or where's this incredible increase coming from? It's so you do have to be quite sceptical when you see um, stuff reported around drugs in New Zealand or probably in any country. Yeah, so just take a moment to think, you know, is this just journalistic licence or is this an actual increase? Um, but I'm not underplaying the harm caused by meth at all. Mm. I just want to point that out. Well, because meth is a good one to bring up, because mm. if you talk about um, le legalising cannabis, mm. um, I don't want to make out that it causes no harm, mm. but the amount of harm that it causes compared to meth is frankly negligible. Yeah, and um, even compared to alcohol, for example, yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah, so if you look at should we legalise cannabis or should we not legalise cannabis, I think um, comparing the harm caused by cannabis to other drugs is maybe not the um, comparison you want to make. You want to think about how much harm does cannabis cause? Can we legalise it in a way that's going to minimise the harms that are being caused currently, which is like the harms from convictions, of which there are thousands every year? Um, and can we minimise the, the health harms caused by cannabis under a legalised structure? And I think that legalising would be a great way to go in terms of um, you know, stopping convictions, making sure our penalties are actually proportional to the crime that's being committed in terms of are people being harmed, are other people being harmed by your personal use of cannabis? Uh, no, probably not. So 
should we be punishing you? No, probably not that ethical to do that. Um, mm. Can we can we make things better in terms of a public health approach, which is what Drug Foundation is all about? Can we minimise the harm caused by cannabis by legalising it? Well, I think we can, because I think we can, um, under a regulated system, we can stop young people accessing it, for example. Uh, we can have an R18 or an R20 on the shop door so that you cannot buy it if you're um, under those ages, uh, whereas currently we ha don't have that. Anyone of any age can buy it because it's completely unregulated. Yeah. So um, Drug dealers don't ask yeah. for ID. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, and other things like potency. Can we control potency now? Can we make sure that 90% uh, THC products are not being sold? Nope, we have no control whatsoever currently. Could we do that in a regulated system? Well, yeah, we could. Is the Drug Foundation, so the Drug Foundation is in favour of legalising cannabis and regulating it. Uh, how, how would you deal with meth? And there's, there's another drug that is actually, frankly, underreported, um, and we should probably talk about it a bit more, and that's synthetics. Now, me personally, I do not use the word synthetic cannabis mm. because... Uh, <laughs> I've smoked both people and they're nothing alike. <laughs> they're not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so there's a whole different... There's so many different types of new synthetic or new sub, um, psychoactive substances. Um, some of them are called synthetic cannabinoids and some of them are different type of... They're trying to imitate different um, compounds. So... Uh, people often call them all synthetic cannabis, but actually there's like 600 new compounds being discovered since 2012. So there are so many different products on the market and they are all kinds of different things. And the problem, I think, the reason that they're so dangerous and that people have been dying over the last year um, in New Zealand, uh, at least 30 people have died over the last year, which I think is a public health crisis mm -hmm. um, because of synthetic substances, um, people just do not know what's in them. So if you buy a bag of something you think is called synthetic cannabis uh, one week, it might be one substance, and the next week it might be another substance entirely, and it's 100 times more potent, and you, next thing you know you're on the floor um, foaming at the mouth, and then you're in the hospital, uh, you may even die. So those things are extremely dangerous, and that's, I guess, a result of our unregulated um, drugs market. So, um, again, it's a result of the war on drugs, really. So if, if you're in an unregulated system, you've got no way to track those kind of drugs. You can't sue. The government can't sue the people selling them because they don't know who they are. So mm -hmm. there's no way to ensure that they're safe for people to um, take. So I think that's a, it's a huge health crisis, and I'm really disappointed that so little's been done um, by the government on that. Um, you know, it's been going on for a while. And I mean, if you compare it to, say, the Havelock North water crisis, some, uh, about three people died, I think, and they had a huge inquiry into that. Why is that not happening around synthetic substances? Um, I do I do know the police are quite concerned about it. Yeah. But the media and the government don't really seem to be paying it a lot of attention. There's no coordinated response to it, I can tell you that, and, and that's really disappointing. I mean, there have been some good responses at community levels, um, mm where you've seen police and um, uh, health services and so on get together um, and and try and come up with some local solutions. Um, I mean, one thing that would be really helpful would be the creation of an early warning system that was nationwide that would pull all data from police and from um, emergency services and, um, and from social service providers and bring them together and then issue warnings really quickly when there was a new substance on the streets, say something terrible was doing the rounds in Invercargill, 
you know, someone would get that message and it would be given to the right people and they would go out and talk to people who were living on the streets or whatever and say, you know, there's a terrible substance going going the rounds, just don't don't try anything that looks like this or, you know, like we should be making big efforts to stop people dying. I just I find it really perplexing that we're not. And I guess one of the real issues there is that a lot of these people, are the people that are dying are quite often the most vulnerable in society. Mm. So the reason they're buying these dangerous drugs at all is because they're so cheap and they, that's all they can afford and that they completely blot them out and they take them out of the, you know, they're often homeless people. So yeah. if you're taking these substances, yes, you may have a terrible health effect, but that's worth it because you're suffering so much pain and you're sitting in the street on a rainy day and it's, you'd rather just not be there at all. So these substances help you deal with that. Yeah, I think that's one thing that people often miss is, like, for vulnerable people, like, the more, frankly, the more miserable your life is, the less you... And this ha- this is true with um, crime. Yeah. Like, the threat of... I think this was brought up in a um, talk from Just Speak. I talked about it. They were talking about prisons. Is like, if you're in a vulnerable position and you're homeless, prison doesn't actually seem like such a bad idea. That's right. Um, and um, this, I think the same is true with health thing, health, mm. health crises, like... Um, yeah, I think I think you're completely right. I think you're if you're a really he- happy, healthy, well-adjusted person who's suffered no trauma and is not facing poverty and has access to healthcare and good, loving family and friends and a really nice life, you're not going to be going out taking these um, substances. It's it's a it's not just about personal choice. It's about sort of structural problems that create these issues. So if you want to really have an impact on. Um, solving drug harm issues in New Zealand, you're going to not just be looking at the mm. substances themselves. That's a really narrow approach. You have to look at poverty. You have to look at homelessness. You have to look at domestic domestic violence and child abuse, and and you have to take a really holistic approach. Yeah, I've always thought a good way to sum this up is um, if you want to think about someone's motives, you got to think about how much do they actually have to lose. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way. <laughs> and of looking that's at a it. very yeah. simple way of looking yeah. at it. Yeah. Um, this is all kind of about synthetics, so it kind of begs the question, though. Um, was it a good idea to um, make it illegal? Well, what, it's a really interesting history, actually. So um, synthetics were being sold legally for quite a long time, and um, so from about the year 2000, and they um, were not... Being, you know, they were being sold in dairies and they were being sold to people of all ages and they were not well regulated, so some of them had quite bad side effects. Um, mm. And the industry actually was quite concerned about this and wanted to regulate it to make it um, safer for everybody. Um, and so that's how the Psychoactive Substances Act was born. And that, um, for, for a, an interim period, um, so what they restricted heavily the number of shops that could sell it and they restricted heavily the amount of products that could be sold but unfortunately the the public relations around that wasn't handled very well so people suddenly got the idea that these new dangerous products were being sold to their children um there was a whole lot of media around you know images of shops with queues of people outside and so on and, and people got their knickers really in a big twist about these products being sold not seeming to get that they'd been sold for a long time already mm. and that this whole act was about making them safer um, and the sort of political knee-jerk reaction to that was to make the act pretty much unworkable mm. so 
the, the point of the Act was to be able to um, lead, to regulate low-harm substances for sale. So if a company could show that this particular substance was not going to cause cancer or was uh, not going to be uh, addictive, was going to be an overall low-harm profile, then they'd be able to sell it, and they'd have to go through a whole lot of scientific processes to show that. Um, unfortunately, no substances have been approved under the Act because of the way... Um, well, the, one of the big reasons is because they added a no animal testing um, part into that at the last minute. So, unfortunately, the Act's not working as it should, and the direct result of that is that we no longer have low-harm psychoactive substances being sold uh, freely, but what we do have is extremely high-harm substances being sold freely um, in an unregulated black market way, profit-driven pure, and not nothing to do with the public health approach. So... Yeah, I, mean, I can see why people want to, don't want to see substances being sold legally, but I think that the um, that if you don't go that route, people are going to want to keep taking drugs. You're not going to stop people wanting to take mm. drugs, and what you're going to end up with is people dying. And is that really what you want? Is if you know, isn't the whole point of a drug law to stop people harming themselves? Is it, or is it just to say morally, you're wrong to take drugs? Don't take drugs. We're going to punish you and you can die if you need to. Yeah, well, as Chris Rock once famously said in one of his stand-ups, um, you could ban everything and you want, and some people are still going to be in their basement cooking up something to get high. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, but on that, on that note, um, there's one drug we hardly ever talk about, and we probably should, and it is a drug. Alcohol. Yes. Does New Zealand have an alcohol problem? <laughs> Absolutely, we have an alcohol problem. I mean, alcohol, I mean, it's interesting. Again, we don't have very good stats or research around what that looks like, but we do know that, say, one in three young people aged 18 to 24 drink hazardously. We know that oh, uh, above that age group, it's one in six. So, you know, we know that a lot of people um, suffer, uh, you know, have huge issues with their alcohol use in New Zealand. It's just so socially acceptable, though, that it's really hard to um, to try and rein that harm back in. So, you know, if, if, so long as you've got people thinking it's okay and funny to be out um, drinking and, and ending up in the hospital or whatever, um, it's really hard to tackle that. Um, so compared to illicit drug use, though, alcohol causes untold times more harm mm -hmm. in terms of physical effects, social effects, financial effects, yeah. But do you think the, I mean, I've heard this um, argument made before mm. um, that alcohol is legal and it's causing all this harm. Mm. So if you legalise cannabis, I don't actually believe this, <laughs> by the way, but, but this is the argument yep. made, yep. that if you legalise cannabis, wouldn't that cause more harm and not less harm? Yeah, so I think the question's more about, it's not about legality so much as about regulation. Like, I think alcohol needs to be better regulated in order mm. to minimise harm, and I think the same for cannabis. It needs to be better regulated. So currently we've got a rampant, you know, we've got a black market, which is unregulated, and alcohol, we've got a capitalist legal market, which is not regulated as well as it should be. Mm. So we need to bring those both into a little sweet spot where they're well regulated with a public health focus. That's what I'd like to see, and that's how I think you minimise harm for both drugs. So, for example, ca uh, alcohol, I think you need to reduce or totally eliminate advertising mm -hmm. and sponsorship, especially associating it with sports or, you know, alcohol advertising is all about being youthful and cool and sexy, and that's how they sell the products, right? But we need to disassociate that image with alcohol drinking 
Um, and also, even more importantly, we need minimum pricing and a higher excise tax on alcohol. Um, yeah, yeah the irony is, is that if you ever know an alcoholic, yep. they're the very opposite of all those things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's right. So I guess if you're taking a little bit occasionally, it, it is that, but if you're, if you're um, suffering harmful use, it's nothing like that. And that's the case for all drugs, isn't it? Mm. Try it once, you might be having a great time, but if you... Um, if you're using it to treat underlying issues that you have and find that you're taking it more and more, then you're not going to be taking it for the enjoyment anymore. You're going to be using it um, because you have other, no other choice and it's just a way to escape your you know, physical or emotional pain. So let's get to treatment because this is a point that um, I think a lot of people miss, is that drugs do not affect everybody the same. Mm. Everybody is different. Um, some people can smoke a little weed every now and again. Um, some people can have weed in their house for like an entire year and not touch it. Whereas other people, they'll smoke it every day. And the same can be said for alcohol. Mm. So obviously we can't make different laws for different people. That's right. Um, so how um, is, is treatment the way, like education about treatment and about addiction as a mental illness rather than a character flaw would that be like a way to deal with that yeah so you're right that it's i think it's around about 20 percent of people in uh, it's different depending on which drug but about 20 percent of people on average within any drug will have issues with the way that they use that drug and 80 percent of people won't so when you're making public health policy you really need to be thinking of those 20 percent and how so you're not thinking about you know if I, if I buy a bottle of wine at the supermarket and it's going to cost me more, so that's, you know, that's completely wrong. You should be thinking about the people who are alcoholic. How is it going to affect them to raise the price or lower the price? Because they're the people we really need to look out for here. So um, that's one thing. It's thinking about it's not just about you guys. It's also about people who are really struggling and being a bit compassionate towards them. Um, and for me, I think... Um, the other big thing is that we need to move away from a criminal model towards uh, illicit drugs and sort of start thinking about a health-focused model. And for me, well, at the Drug Foundation, we've got a three-pronged approach to that, and one is decriminalising the personal use and possession of drugs. Uh, one is, as I said before, legalising cannabis. And the third one is better investment in healthcare treatment. So that means prevention, that means education, that means harm reduction and also treatment. So there's a whole spectrum of different things you can help people with depending on where they are in their use. It's not just that you you give them residential care when they're really in a terrible space. Like That's important too, but you also want to be helping people earlier on before they get to that point. Would you be able to tell me, like I know this is a problem in mental health, Mm. that everyone on in every social demographic suffers from mental health. But the people who are in a... So it doesn't... So poor people are not more crazy than <laughs> rich people. It doesn't work like that. But people who are wealthier can seek help yep. more easily than poor people. Is that the same way with treatment for drugs, since it is a mental illness? So mm. we can sort of put it in the same... Box. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely sure it is. I mean, it's not. It's partly to do with how much money you've got. So, say you, you know, if you're rich, you can go and pay for a private psychologist to help you. Um, you could get an appointment tomorrow. If you're not, you'll be on a waiting list for months potentially. So, yep, it's finances, but it's not. It's also social capital. Like, how much are you 
do you even know where to find a psychologist? Like, would you even would it even occur to you to go and look for one? Do you have friends who can recommend one? Like, it's it's not just about the money, but it's about the sort of world that you live in and whether you think you're even worthy of, of getting help, I guess, as well. So um, there's all those different issues which tie into um, the result of whether a person gets help for their mental health or for their addiction. And, of course, we mustn't forget they're often tied up as well, tied up together. Final question. Just to wrap it all up, what policies can we implement going forward to obviously we can't eliminate drug mm. harm, but to reduce drug harm in our society, keeping in mind the taxpayer's dime? Because let's be honest, yep. um, the voter cares about the taxpayer dime. Yep. So what would be the most effective, most co- uh, the most effective in reducing the mm. harm at the least amount of cost? Yeah, so I think it's, well, obviously we need to invest more money in healthcare and, and treatment. Um, but I think, although that look is a fiscal cost in the year that you invest it, I think over the long term it's not a cost because you're actually reaping benefits which are far in excess of the money you've just spent. Say, if you, if you spend um, $100 a day treating a person for their drug use um, disorder, that's a third of the cost that you'd be treating, you'd be spending on them if they were in prison, for example, um, in a couple of years down the track you might find that they're actually giving you that much in tax dollars so the more you can be proactive about helping people with their drug use the more money as a society we're going to get back in the end if you want to look at it purely in the in the financial kind of um, framework um, so um, we, we actually came up with a, a model last year called Whakawatia Tahurahi, which is a model drug law for New Zealand um, we based it a lot on um, the Law Commission recommendations in a report they did in 2011 about what would work best for New Zealand. So it's a, th- a three-part model. Um, as I said before, it's decriminalisation of possession and use of all drugs, not just cannabis. It's then a legal model for cannabis, and then it's doubling investment in healthcare and treatment. And I actually think that if you were to legalise and tax cannabis, you would make um, more than enough money out of that to uh, cover the extra investment in healthcare. So I think what we're proposing is not actually going to cost New Zealand any money. It's going to take the money out of the, from the black market into the um, tax sort of structure and we can then earmark that for treatment and healthcare. So, yeah, we've got the solution here, guys. We just need to move forward mm. with it. <laughs> so it's basically like taxing cigarettes or alcohol. Exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're doing a better job of that with can- with tobacco than we are with alcohol, of course. Mm. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I've always <laughs> found that really, really funny. Like, mm. New Zealand is coming down hard on tobacco, much to the complete um, dismay <laughs> yeah. of smokers, um, but not alcohol. Yeah. It's just really weird. I think maybe the worm has turned, uh, maybe... I don't know, maybe because tobacco smells bad, so some people just really dislike it a lot. Mm. And so they really came out strong campaigning against it. I mean, I'm just guessing here, but alcohol, um, for some reason, is just so accepted still that we're not there yet. But I wonder if in 10, 15 years people might think differently about it Um, and might start to see, you know, the harms caused by alcohol as sort of similar to the harms caused by tobacco, which, which of course, they are in terms of health outcomes. You know, there's a lot of terrible health outcomes from smoking, uh, from drinking alcohol heavily in the same way as there is from smoking tobacco. So let's be realistic about that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. So I hope you um, have a bit more of a idea about uh, drug policy and the possible solutions as well as the problems. 
Next episode, we're going to talk about another dark issue, which is actually related to prisons and drugs, and that is that of domestic violence. Yes, forget Jake the Must, there's actually some really surprising statistics to do with this, so join me next time. This has uh, been Lifting the Rug, and I've been Amy Eastwood. Bye-bye.